0: Well, church, you did it. Today is the very first weekend in the brand new series called God Is Not. And I'd like to do this morning is kind of do a flyover, an overview as to what we hope to accomplish in this series time together, and then maybe some of the why behind it. You see, this overarching view of God is not, as we're dropping in on a few different ideas, a few different beliefs that we have about who God is, that God is not. And this hopefully is going to challenge us in some way. So next week... We're going to learn and we're going to hear more about how God is not a cold-hearted or a distant God. The week after that, part three, is about how God is not simply just a warm, fuzzy kind of God. And today, God is not an on-demand kind of God. We're going to drop in at a number of things that God is not really truly because, and I'll just be honest, is I have this experience quite often where I'm sitting with somebody and something has just happened. Maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's an illness, maybe it's some relational disruption, uh, maybe it's a problem with a roommate or something like that. Whatever it is, there's some kind of event that happened. And because of that, it has many of us like triggering this thing inside of us to say, maybe the problem isn't just with that person or just with that event, maybe the problem is my faith, or maybe the problem is God. Because if God could allow this thing to happen, Maybe that means that God doesn't really love us at all, or God doesn't, isn't even really in control at all. Because this thing happened, and this is the thing, people that never considered jettisoning faith before start to think about, maybe I should just walk away completely. And so I've had enough of these conversations where I sit down with people and I kind of hear part of the story that unfolds. And somewhere inside there, there's like this nugget, th- this like mistaken belief about who God is. And once we can kind of learn about that thing and hear about that thing, we can start to identify, oh, God never said that he was that thing in the first place and set that aside and start to experience who God said that he is, the true God, the God as he revealed himself in the Bible. And so, what what this series is all about is to start kind of doing this like spiritual, or maybe you could call it theological, uh, flossing. Not like the, the dance of flossing. It's not that kind of flossing. This spiritual theological flossing is like this this habit that we have of going through and like cleaning out what doesn't belong. And it might be painful at first, but as you do it and continue to do it, listen, you are going to be prevented some really, really hardships later on. It is going to prevent you from experiencing a lot of pain, not right away, but down. The line, And so we're going to take a look at maybe some of those things that just don't belong and try to like floss those things right out of there, right? So, so like I said, those things that don't belong about the warm fuzzy God or just the cold and distant God. And today, the, um, the on demand kind of God. And this is so difficult because for so many of these things, these are just like in the culture that we live in, right? It's, it's like the air that we breathe. It's sort of like creep in, and we don't even know all the time like where we get these ideas from. We don't understand all the time. Like articulated, this is what I believe. They just sort of find their way in our hearts and our belief systems. And it causes really this nasty stuff on the far side. So like I said about this on-demand kind of God, this is so toxic and it's just so all around us all the time because everything that we do, we expect it to be on demand. True story, I get off the airplane and Grand Rapids International Airport is like this big. Right, I love it. It's awesome. It's so quick all the time. But I'm walking from like the little thing that you walk out of the plane to the front entrance, which is not that far away, and I'm like, you know, immediately on my phone like I'm going to get my Uber, so it's right there as I walk out, and this message pops up. And it says that you actually have to be closer to the exit or or you actually have to be outside in order to call your Uber. And I'm like, what is that? This is going to take forever. Like, no, it's going to take five more minutes. Just walk to the door and then try it again. It doesn't take long. But because of like the on-demandness of the culture that we live in and love, right, we just sort of expect everything to happen immediately. And you can laugh at me, and that's fine. But I also know that many of you are the type of people who get the oatmeal packet out in the morning and you see that it takes three minutes in the microwave. Who's got time for that? I'll just do cereal instead, right? Because on-demand kind of of life, uh, my kids are six and eight. Uh, we we are not typically a sports family. We don't uh, we don't watch that many sports, but we have gotten way into the women's World Cup. Don't tell me how it turns out. I'm saving it, but like we've watched all of these games before this one, where I like sprung the the seven day free trial, where I could like record stuff. So again, don't tell me how it ends. I didn't spring anything for that. That was a joke, but like but like throughout this series, you know, I'm just I'm trying to teach my kids that you actually have to wait. For a game to be aired in order to watch it. And so I'm teaching them like how to, you know, screw in this antenna. And they're like, what are you doing with this cord running through the living room? And I'm like trying to find the signal, right? And then, and then we have to actually plan our day around around when the game is going to be on and like say no to stuff so that we can be sure to be there during the game that we want to see. And for my kids who have lived their whole lives with like Netflix, YouTube for kids, and Spotify, they don't understand something that's not on demand, streamed all the time. It's just the air that we breathe. And then all of a sudden something happens. There's like one of those events that I talked about earlier. Or maybe it's a job thing, maybe it's a relational thing. There's one of those events where somebody gets sick and as a family we gather around and we pray for that person like again and again and again. And we pray so hard and we teach our kids and we join our small groups and our church communities and we pray, maybe harder than we've ever prayed for anything before. And the person that we're praying for, they don't get better. It even looks like they're getting worse. And when we take the on-demand culture that we have and we overlap it with God, and we're like, what happened? You must not care. You must not be capable. Or you must not exist. I can think of a couple that would just be fantastic parents. And everybody around them knows they would be fantastic parents. And they kind of know and they kind of sense, like, we'd be great parents. But month after month goes by, and they're just, it hasn't happened for them yet. And then when it finally does, they lose the baby. God, why wouldn't you show up and provide this thing that you're so obviously supposed to be and because we expect that God would automatically grant us those good things that we desire we expect these things to just sort of fall in line and happen like the the cosmic vending machine in the sky that we just we put in our money and we punch in the coat and the, the candy bar is supposed to drop down or we rub the lamp. And the genie is supposed to pop out when we say our fathers are for our Catholic brothers and sisters, our Hail Marys. And the genie is supposed to grant us the three wishes. And it's like that doesn't happen. And so we're like, maybe the genie isn't real. Maybe the vending machine doesn't actually exist. And you're right. They don't. It doesn't. God never promised that that's how it works in the first place. He never said that he was an on-demand kind of God, who he actually is, is something so much better. And I'd like to introduce you to that God, because nobody figured this out better than an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah lived a remarkably difficult life. It might take some time to find the book of Jeremiah, so if you'd like to, in a paper Bible, underneath the chair in front of you, you can go ahead and start finding Jeremiah. Pro tip, table of contents is one of the first pages. Uh, uh, words are also going to be on the screen behind me in just a moment. Jeremiah as a prophet is, uh, has a role to speak truth uh, to the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and kind of as we get into this, I want to clarify that a little bit, I guess, because sometimes when we think about a prophet, we think about somebody who has presumably like a crystal ball or tarot cards or something that they're, they're reading to know what's going to happen next. And we think, oh yeah, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who predicts the future but that's not really the, 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 the deal with an Old Testament prophet and even speaking a prophetic word today. It's not so much of a future telling as it is a forth telling. And so I'll kind of give you a couple quick examples. If you, if you work alongside of somebody and you have kind of a similar job they do and, and you kind of understand maybe they've been at the company like a little bit longer than you have or a little bit shorter and you kind of understand like we probably earn kind of similar money and you just like look over there at them and they're just like buying stuff all the time. I mean, it's like Amazon boxes on repeat, right? Just again and again. And they show up with, it's always a newer, nicer car than you have. They got like a boat thing, stuff with motors in it. And you're going like, listen, I'm not judging at all, but it's just an observation that I have is like, we make the same money, but like you're, you're buying things all the time. If you go up to that person, and you say, listen, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to say this, the way that you're throwing your money around, you're going, to end up broke. Like, people will come and will literally take your car from you in the middle of the night. It's a repo. You might even get on TV for it. Like, this is going to happen to you. Now, if you, if you do that to somebody, on one hand, you could be like, wow, where'd you, like, how'd you look into that crystal ball and, like, tell the future that way? And you're like, well, no. I just kind of like did the math behind the thing and I can figure out that you have no business buying this stuff that you can't afford, that you can't pay for. And so that's just the natural, listen, the natural consequences of the behavior that I observe. It's not so much future telling, although I guess there is an element of future in there, but it's just like, this is what happens. In the same way, if you go up to somebody and just observe their life or what they post on social media or the stories that they tell, And the way that they live their lives is like they're throwing their bodies or their sexuality around. It's like they're just, they're holding it just so incredibly loosely. And, And you're going like, listen, this thing doesn't, it doesn't line up. And the beliefs that we have as Christians is like, we believe that this is a good God-given thing within the bounds of marriage. And like when we just like throw it around like that, you could go up to that person and you could say, listen, the, the decisions that you're making, the life that you're living, maybe it's not gonna happen this year or next year or in the next 10 years. Maybe it's not happening in your 20s or 30s at all, but at some point, 40s, like it's going, you're going to get hurt. And it sounds like a future kind of telling thing. And you're going, no, no, no. I'm just relaying what I understand to be the wisdom of God. Since he created the universe and us people inside of it, he presumably knows how it should all run. And so I'm just passing that along. That's the natural consequences of the behavior exhibited. And so it's not so much like looking at the crystal ball future, but it's like this, this this is just how things work. And Jeremiah has the undesirable task of not just with a friend or a guy at the job site, but he's got the undesirable task to speak to the entire nation, the southern nation of Judah, and say, listen, the way that we have turned our backs on God. And to the leadership in particular, and saying the, the spiritual leadership, and saying the way that we have turned towards the created things away from the Creator, we will soon be suffering under the under the natural consequences of the behavior that I observe. In particular, I know that the Babylonians are coming. And in fact, they're almost here and they won't stop until we are completely destroyed. Turn to God and ask for his relent. Ask for his help in this time. If we don't, this is naturally what's going to happen next. And and he had this message that he brought so reliably and consistently. And so I'd even say tragically that they actually gave him a nickname. And we have a nickname for him today. Is Jeremiah because he was always the bringer of bad news and the people never really much listened to him in the first place. We started calling him the weeping prophet because he's always weeping over the sins of the people. He was always weeping over the direction that he saw his people, his city, Jerusalem, the capital city, going. He saw what was coming as a natural result and he just wept over Jerusalem. And so we call him him the weeping prophet. He had this such an undesirable task. And at one place, at one point in his life, in his ministry, he was so low and he was so beaten up that God actually calls him in and gives him this interesting object lesson as a way to like pick him up and encourage him to keep on moving. And this is what it is in in Jeremiah verse 18. And let's pick it up in verse one, reading a, a few verses here. It says, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, from the Lord. Lord said, go down to the potter's house and there I'll give you my message. And so I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. And so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Which is to say, shaping it as the potter saw fit, not the clay. And so it just kind of strikes me that as a way of encouragement to Jeremiah, God calls him the prophet. And I think he calls all of us as the church to go down to the potter's house. And you just sort of watch this process that has changed very, very little in the last few thousand years. One difference is that, probably the only difference, is that Jeremiah would have observed probably a potter's apprentice manually on a crank spinning the wheel while the master potter worked. We have an electric wheel. Outside of that, it's basically the same exact thing. I want to invite us, just as a church community, to go down to the potter's house and just observe along with Jeremiah for just a moment. Watch the potter shape and form the clay. You know, the process, it strikes me, of the potter, it doesn't start here. It doesn't start with a wheel turning around in the potter, digging his fingers into the clay. No, the pottery, the potter starts not even in the potter's house in particular. I imagine Jeremiah as he walks up to the potter's house following the instructions of God. And he sees one of the potters, or maybe it's an apprentice, outside on the sidewalk. And he's got a few lumps of clay, you know, pre-vases, pre-bowls, right? Before they're shaped and formed. He's got these things and he's, and he's out there on the sidewalk slamming it down. He's out there in the city street and he's like, whack, again and again. And Jeremiah watches this thing take place. And he's like, this is what you brought me to see? And it's like, whack, one more time. And he may have asked the potter why he's doing that with the clay, and the potter would simply point out that step one in the process is you have to get the air bubbles out. I mean, that's just what happens if there's there's even the tiniest gap of air in the pot when it's finished getting made. When you take it at 60 degrees, 70 degrees, and you put it in a kiln at over 2,000 degrees, that little pocket of air is going to expand. And especially as the chemical composition changes from clay to a ceramic, a hard, hardness to it, it's not just going to expand as an air bubble. It's going to explode the pot. So the apprentice is out there and he's slamming it up against the sidewalk again and again. It looks like a painful process, but, but the potter is saying, no, it's necessary because once the heat is turned up, Just when you think you're turning into something beautiful, I don't want disaster to strike from within. I just imagine us along with Jeremiah, watching as the potter pushes his fingers firmly down into the clay to begin it. At first it's hard, isn't it? It's difficult to do and it almost looks painful as the, as the potter digs down deep. And Jeremiah can, can wince almost at the time and, and all of us just see that process take place. And we know what it's like, don't we? A lot of time we know what it's like when, when, when God pushes his fingers just in that exact place to shape us most. And it's almost a painful experience as God sees that part of your heart that you don't want anybody else to know about. God sees that, that part of you, that mask that you wear, the insecurity that we all have. And he starts to push on it. And you're saying, no, God, not there. Don't open that up to the light of day. I don't want anyone else to know. And God, the potter says, no, no, no. If we don't do this, if we don't smooth it out now, it'll never, it'll never be shaped in form. We have to do it this way. I notice as Cal, our master potter, who by the way, you'll usually see him playing bass on our worship team and who has been with Encounter since forever, (laughs) the very beginning. I notice that as as he shapes and forms the pot, he's got a bowl of water and the entire process, it's wet and it's messy. He's continually adding water to it. A reason for that, of course, is that if it dries out, if there's not enough water, the, the clay becomes unmoldable, un, unshapable. You can start to see the, the wet clay has already started to turn into dust on my hands. It, it's, it's not going to be formed for anything. And if it dries out too much, if it's going to be too much work, the, the, the potter will just lump it up and he'll throw it off into the corner which is an interesting thing, really, right? Because it's not, it's not that the clay can't be formed. It's just that the clay isn't ready to be formed yet. It needs to sit in a damp, moisture-heavy area to, to, to moisten up, to, to become more moldable. I just imagine as God folds in the clay As we're resistant to his leading and and we don't want to be pressed into. And God says, it's not that I'm done with you. It's not that I'm not going to shape you. It's just that your time isn't ready yet. I haven't forgotten and I still have a plan. Even though it looks like nothing is happening, you're just going to be set over here. This is part of the process too. As Cal puts the lump of clay on the middle, it strikes me in this process how remarkably centered the clay needs to be on the spinning wheel. You know, because it's off to the side too much. If it's off axis, either vertically or horizontally, then it's... uh, It'll be fine at first, but as the wall starts to take shape and as it starts to build up, of course, it'll start to teeter and totter and spin and eventually topple. And I just wonder as Jeremiah sees that and saying, this is the life we're called to live, centered on the gospel, centered on God. The apostle, a follower of Jesus, Peter, he knows this Well, And Peter, in his letters in the New Testament, he frequently uses a a 2 title phrase for Jesus. He continuously calls Jesus, not just the Christ, but he calls Jesus the Lord and Savior. Almost as a way to dial in using these two axes. To say, a Savior we understand. A Savior from what? Our sins. A Savior so that we can stand up to to God at the last day on judgment time. And, And God is rattling off the offenses That we have had. And God is saying, Listen, there's all of this stuff. How are you going to give an account for the life that you live, the shortfall that you've had? And then we point over there to Christ and say, He took it. He saved me from my sins. There's a Savior this way. One axis for how to die well. But Peter says, No, 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 no. no. It's not just that Jesus is your Savior, He's also your Lord because your Lord is the one who gives your whole life its shape and purpose. The Lord is the one is the one that we turn everything over, every aspect of my life, every element of my heart, every hope that I have, everything I hope to accomplish, every relationship that I cultivate and develop. I pour it all, I hand it all over to God. And I say, God, you are in charge, not me. And so when we call him, as the center place of being Lord and Savior, what we're essentially saying is we're squared up and knowing how to die well, but also how to live well. And these two things, our intention, they, they cannot be emphasized one over the other. It's not simply about dying and not caring about how to live well. No, no, it has to be both. Otherwise, the pot will tipple, will topple over as it teeters and totters. When I first started watching, maybe it's part of my on-demandness, but I was just struck with how slow the table moves. I always thought the process would be faster, but watching it, it's slow, it's methodical. It makes me think about how there's so many metaphors in the Bible that are agricultural in nature, which I'll admit, I just don't get. I didn't grow up on a farm. I do very little gardening. I I have no idea how that stuff works, but I read through the Bible and it's, it's so many images about harvesting and about planting and about seasons. And watching the master potter, I start to understand, I start to get. I'm told that you harvest very rarely in the same season that you plant. I've seen that around here at Encounter Church. We were lacking a men's ministry for some time. And this was a difficult thing because, you know, half of us are men. And, and so we're like, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to do this? And so we start praying about it. But, but days come, days go. Weeks come, weeks go. And, and it's like nobody is raising up to say, listen, th- this is the ministry that I'm going to lead. We're begging, we're pleading. It's just not, it's just not happening. And so we're not in the season. But we're asking people and we're praying. We're laying down these seeds. And then all of a sudden, a little, a little ways earlier, about a month earlier now, Several people come out of the woodwork to say, listen, I've got a heart for men's ministry. Do you think that you could use that here at Encounter Church? It's slow. It's methodical. It's intentional. You harvest very rarely in the same season that you're planting. What are you planting? One of the things that I find very difficult about this is the potter could get very near to the end as he did in the story that Jeremiah told. And the potter could decide, this wasn't the shape that this particular pot needed to be. See, I, w- I, had something, I have something else in mind. I have something better in mind, in fact, for this particular piece of clay. See, all of us, we all want to be built up tall. We all want to be that, that, that exquisite vase that he brings home full of flowers on their 50th wedding anniversary. We all want to be that vessel that gets stored on top of the fireplace for us all to look at. And so guests come over and, and admire just how beautiful it really is. And you can almost hear God whisper to Jeremiah and also to us, yes, the vase is gorgeous, but have you ever tried eating Fruit Loops out of a vase? I didn't make you to be that vase. I made her to be the vase. I made you to be a bowl. And don't ask to be a vase. The vase doesn't ask to be a bowl. I'm making you what I decide to be. And some of the most some of those hardest words that we could ever utter, utter would be, God, not my will, but yours. God, you're the potter. I'm the clay. And it's actually better that way. Because you know how to shape us. You know how to form us. You know how to design us. You know how to fashion us better than we know ourselves. Ourselves. Jeremiah is about to leave the potter's house when there's one more word. The next verse. That the word of the Lord came to me. Verse six, he said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel, and encounter church. There's so much that is so deeply comforting in the words of God to say, are you not clay in my hands, the potter? Am I not the potter? You are not the clay. Isn't it better this way? Can I not do with you what I please? Those words on one side are so entirely comforting and reassuring and altogether terrifying if we're honest with ourselves and God. Because no matter what happens, no matter what relational disappointment, no matter what disease of the body, no matter what discouragement that happens at work, you always hear the words ringing, the truth behind you. Am I not the potter? Are you not the clay? Can I not do with you what I please? I have not shared this story on stage ever before, but this was about maybe 11, 12 years ago when my wife and I were were somewhat newlyweds and encounter church, a church that would start in my living room and uh, and would have a name and vision and values and, and all of what it is today and then what God takes with it in the future, but before any of that before well it was just a little idea and I had and I had this this idea in my heart that God was actually asking me to step into a speaking role and and to reassure god's people about god's love. For all of them on a weekly basis and getting excited about what would be Encounter Church. I remember laying down and doing uh, devotions with my new wife, and it was a book, and I just remember reading through it, and about midway through the book, church, I couldn't speak. I could, I could read it. My mind was working well. But, like, as the words started to, to form, I couldn't shape my tongue, my lips, my mouth enough to, like, actually get the right sound out. And, I mean, there was this initial, like, like terrifying, this fear. Because the fear was I was dying. <laughs> I didn't know what this was like. I, I, I was pretty sure I was having a stroke. I have no medical basis for that diagnosis whatsoever, but, but like I'm like my wife is, what is wrong? Why aren't you saying anything? And I could nod and I could shake my head. So this all happens like on the way to the hospital when it strikes me that, that I can think just fine. I can move okay. I'm experiencing no pain in the rest of my body. The only ailment, the only symptom that I have is like I can't speak. And so the fear starts to give way to worry. And the difference is I was no longer terrified of dying, but, but now I had long enough in that moment to start to imagine my life without speech. And I start to think about not ever getting to tell my then unborn kids that I love them, not ever being able to tell my new wife that I love her ever again, not ever being able to tell the people of God about the love of God. And looking back on that experience and still to this day not really knowing what that was all about, the words here from Jeremiah terrify me because in the back I can still hear God saying, are you not the clay? Am I not the potter? Can I not choose to do whatever I wish with you? And isn't it actually better that way? And faith says, okay, I trust you, the Master Potter. Do with me what you would choose, not me. When we think about this on-demand faith that sometimes we slip into, on-demand God that doesn't actually exist. When things happen, sometimes we look around and we look at an answer to prayer. God, take this thing away. God, restore back my speech. God, restore back my job, my relationship. God, please help. Please help. Please do. Please do. Please take. Please restore. God, please answer to prayers. And we look around at an answer to prayer for evidence that God still loves us and God still cares But this week when you bump into something that does not go your way, I want you to look at that and I want you to say, God, you're the potter, I'm the clay, it's better that way. And any time I need to be reminded about the love that you have for each one of us, I'm no longer gonna look at the number and quality of the answered prayers in my life. If I need to be reminded of your love, I will look to the cross of Christ and I'll see that, no, no, you love me to death. And back again. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are the master potter, and we are the clay. God, each one of us, you're shaping and you're forming, pressing firmly into our centers and exposing those things that maybe we don't want to expose, the insecurities that we hold. God, maybe for some of us, you're out there, you're bashing us up against the sidewalk, and we say, Why? It hurts. And you're saying, it's because I don't want you to be destroyed in the heat that is coming. It's for your own good. God, some of us, you're shaping into something beautiful that stands up tall, and others, something useful for every day. God, may we look at all of it as a gift from you. It's your way, not our way. You're the potter, we're the clay. It's better that way. Jesus, it's in your name. We pray all these things. Amen.